Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. This week I feature a 2011 interview I did with Flaming Carrot creator Bob Burden. Burden also created The Mystery Men, which was a cult film from 1999, as well as a bunch of other media properties. As you'll hear, Bob was an interesting guy, um, definitely has his own attitude towards the world and a very interesting sense of who he was and where he has been in his career. Uh, it's a wacky interview, which suits his personality extremely well. And I had a lot of fun kind of listening back on this. Hope you enjoy it. <laughs> Okay, recording. So I'm here with Bob Burden of um, Mystery Man and Flaming Carrot and yeah. Marvel Comics. Yeah. Which is an interesting bit of revenge, considering what's happening uh, with the Mystery Men property. Oh, it's not revenge. It's just a coincidence. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> See, what happened was they came out with um, Mystery Men. Uh, they trademarked it, I guess, probably in 2009. Now, the thing is... They trademarked it, we did, did a check on it, and uh, they trademarked Mystery Men on August 5th, 2009. The trademark Universal mailed was August 5th or 6th, 1999, and the trademark only lasts for 10 years. Mm -hmm. So somebody was sitting there you know, scoping it out and sniping it. Now, they denied... Now, th this is the thing, they. Who is they? With a corporation, they can say anything they want, and there's nobody that's responsible because spokesmen said this. You know? Well, and now it's Disney, too. They're the most litigious, litigious country or company in the world. Right. With the most... With the deepest pockets of any company in the world, or some of them. Right. So good luck fighting them, right? Oh, we can fight them. Okay. You don't want to give up. That's the whole thing. But you don't want to go broke either. Huh? You don't want to go broke either. No. Hey, uh -huh. the, the, you know, we what we're going to do is we're going to fight them as best we can with what we know. We're going to fight them on our... They came to our country, so we're going to fight them on our ground. Okay. And we're going to fight by our rules. Mm -hmm. So, basically, um, or oppose them, shall we say. Fighting is a different... You know, might have some ramification so I'll use the term oppose or represent against mm -hmm. however you want to call it okay I'll make sure you get a copy of this before we run oh, it oh yeah that'd be a good idea <laughs> and have my lawyer look it over but anyways um, the idea was to um, come out with this uh, instead of legally battling them which would be pointless uh we decided to uh, come out with our own company called Marvel Comics. And uh, we have, uh, we don't have a, a Dr. Doom, but we do have a world's greatest su supervillain. Uh, we've got, uh, we don't have a Fing Fang Foom, but we've got a Flip Flap Flop. <laughs> then we got other various characters that are kind of, uh, see, in other words, we're not doing a satire of, yeah. we're doing a sort of strange Funhouse Mirror version of, a non-Marvel type. Well, I, I knew if you're working on it, it can't be. It has to have some sort of strange funhouse mirror element to it. Well, see, this is the thing. On every level, like for instance, we have, we don't have a Fantastic Four, but we got uh, a Dew Squad. And the Dew Squad, instead of being four people who are all white, are four girls. Okay. 
Fantastic Four is mostly men. These are four girls. They're all black. They're four ebony beauties with super hard hairdos. And instead, <laughs> nice. instead of getting their powers from gamma rays, you see what I'm saying? Uh-huh. You know? uh, and, uh, you know, we have this these characters, so they're very, very different from the Fantastic Four. I mean, as opposite as you could be. It's not even a satire. It's so far removed it would not be the... Nobody would ever think of it as a satire. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, we invented uh, these characters over the years, and actually a lot of the stuff, you know, around the time of Mystery Men being uh, hijacked or whatever you want to call it, uh, the uh, I was you know proposing some stuff to Marvel. Marvel was talking to me about doing some stuff, and. Uh, then I just stopped getting calls from everybody there, mysteriously. Huh. And I did actually do one story, which was a story of, um, uh, it was about, it was for Avengers, and it was, it, it, the Mole Man had these little minions that were his buddies, you right. know, that would follow him around and do things, yeah. and they were just like little squidgelums, and uh, they... Uh, A lot like Spongeboy now, they think. Yeah, of. like Spongeboy. And what happened was... In the story, they kind of disappeared uh-huh. in a puff, a puff of pink dust or something like that. Well, I took it like they went out the air conditioning system and escaped into the city. And these are these are little guys that don't know anything about the real world out there. So all of a sudden, these these threatening evil villains suddenly become the hunted by society, by civilization, in other words, and by accident. You know, and they escape out this thing, and they, they run across the expressway, and two or three of them, four or five of them, get killed by cars just, just crossing the expressway. Uh-huh. And some of them survive, and then uh, <coughs> they go here and do this, and, and they get uh, in, in all kinds of trouble. More of them get killed here, and then towards the end, there's only a few left, and they're running across the suburban lawn, and uh, some little kids say, look at those funny things down there. Let's shoot at them. They get some BB guns and start shooting at them, and only three survive and make it through that gauntlet. So they wind up living in a, in, a, in a deserted bread truck, an abandoned bread truck behind a shopping plaza, and living by uh, going into the dollar store and shoplifting. <laughs> and so in my story, the original story I did for Marvel, um, they, in order to make themselves look like a human being, they go one on top of each other with a Ben Grimm-type overcoat right. and a hat. Yeah, totally imagine that. And so while they're shoplifting, the one in the middle reaches out and grabs something, and the, and, the, and the one girl up front says to the other girl, go check on them, they're, they're shoplifting. So when this hand comes reaching out of the center of the overcoat and grabs this thing, she's very impressed. And instead of turning him into the police, she makes a date with him. <laughs> what Anyways, a surprise. But they kind of cut out the part about the big hand, arm and hand coming out of the middle of the overcoat and grabbing the shoplifting. But anyways. Oh, yeah, a little phallic, yeah. So... Anyways, the point I'm making is that it's fun stuff. But I was working with them at the time. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden, for some mysterious and unknown reason, this Mystery Men business started. Uh, I mean, if they wanted to, 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 to get Mystery Men from me, they could have... I would license it to them probably for a dollar. But remember, stealing. Some people out there that it doesn't taste good unless you steal it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. 
Well, the irony of it, though, is that, like, Mystery Man's this cult movie. I, I have conversations all the time with my friends. Have you seen Mystery Man's the best comic adaptation? Nowadays, ten years, ten years later, it's, it's come into its own. It was ahead of its time. It's got, it's got the second life. There's just something about those characters that everybody loves. Yeah. You know, they're, they're so... We can relate to them. They're actual kind of normal human beings on some level. Are we still recording? Yeah, we are. I got a text as it came through. But yeah, so. Okay. As long as the lights are going. Sure. So anyways, uh, I had fun with the mystery, but I would have wrote, written for them too, and I would have you know, written for a good page rate and whatever. I mean, you know, they would have got that, and I guarantee you that, you know, those four mystery men, they might not be the best comic books ever done. I mean, 10 Minutes in a Man's Life or The Square Story by Barks are hard to beat, but... Yeah. You know, one of my friends was saying, well, hell, those, those four stories are better than anything Marvel probably put out last year. Yeah, really. I mean, a lot of people would say that. I mean, I'm not, I can't say that because I'm the creator of this stuff. Who, who am I to be saying such crazy, insane things? But no, I mean, a lot of your stuff is stuff that sticks in my mind. The dead dog jumped up and, jumped, and flew out of the room, flew around the room. It's still, you know, it's still one I keep coming back to. Yeah, fun yeah. stuff. It's awesome, yeah. I grew up with that. You know, we're slightly different generations, but that's the stuff I grew up with that, that just had an impact on me. Well, see, what I'm saying right now, what I'm doing is I'm saying that Marvel... Yeah, so... Uh, Getting back to Marvel. Yeah. Marvel and DC are very important to the comic book industry. They're at the bottom of the food chain. In other words, like if it was drugs, you know, they're like the pot that people start on and it leads to higher drugs. Uh, And and people say, oh, that's ridiculous. Pot doesn't make you... Show me one person that's doing heroin or cocaine now or crack that didn't start out on pot. Good point. (laughs) So... Maybe not the best analogy for comics, but I get it. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but I mean... <laughs> well, actually, because we do need our fix every week. Exactly. Same thing. Yeah. Anyways, the point I'm making is that, uh, you know, with Marvel... See, this is one of the key things for the whole industry. The industry, people are all blaming the failure of the industry on uh, comics... Uh, You know, well, we're competing with video games. Well, they're getting it free on the internet. Well, this, all that. This is the thing. If you have good stories, they will come. You have to build it, and they will come. Now, the stuff that Marvel and DC is doing is playing to comic fans. It's not playing to a mass market audience. Right. And I like to do stories that are complete self-contained. They want to do continuity because it's so much easier. It's so hard to do a complete one-issue story. And I did that for the first four Mystery Men. You can give any one of those comics to somebody, and there's no continuity. They just pick up the book, they read it right there, and they understand it. You can give it to the doorman in your hotel, the cab driver. They'll read it, understand it, and enjoy it and say, give me some more. Whereas you give them a Marvel comic, and it's like so overly drawn and everything like that, and so referential to previous things and they make these things where they have this this whole war going on between this universe and that universe and this person's got to be in that comic book and the, and, and the cross-referencing makes all that stuff not only mind-boggling and, and somewhat uh, dribble but uh, and, and meaningless but uh, also it gives people a headache sometimes uh-huh. so if you come out with a new drug that gives everybody headaches that tries it new. What are you gonna? What what good is that? So, anyways, the key is good storytelling. And the thing is, you don't need to make all the books. These people are like their brains only think of there's right brain and left brain. They think you got oh we got to make all our books good stories. Forget about it. No, all you need is say five, maybe three, maybe even eight titles that are real good. And I saw that happen back in the early '80s when you had Cerebus, you had uh, the Hernandez brothers, you had Dan Clowes. 
you had uh, with eight ball and of course maybe flaming carrot uh, you know and you had all these really weird creative interesting books and people had a reason to come to a comic book store because there was a, we weren't competing with each other if there was only one of us we'd be much worse off but if there's a, a whole united front whole school of, of, of oddball comic characters or quirky comic characters boom I don't want to say too far off on a tangent, but that's the generation I grew up with. Sure. Like I graduated high school in 1984. Normal age is people grow out of comics, but there were so many interesting books out there. It was exciting. It was yours. Fun. I felt like I was on the cusp of this great movement. You know, Nexus, American Flag, uh, Cerebus. All these books were coming out, and they were like adult in the right way. Yeah. They were cool and interesting and fun with great stories that were compelling. And even like a book like Cerebus had those, these long, continuing stories, but each issue was very satisfying in its own. And sure. you didn't need to read the satellite title to understand what was happening, too. Sure. And you read them together, and they become the greater tapestry. It does feel like we're, it's much more top-down also than inside-out. And that was kind of what was cool about the movement at that time, too, is that so much of it was driven by your vision, your vision specifically, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the early Flaming Carrots especially were just so, so unique. Um, There's literally nothing else out there, and that's what made it so compelling. Did you, was it exciting to be part of that? You, that was really like, like being part, part of, of the 1948 New York Yankees or being part of the jazz movement in the mid-50s, playing there with, you know, Charlie Bird Parker and... Uh, all those guys, Polonius uh, Monk, I mean, being part of that bunch of guys, even if I was just, say, a bat boy compared to those other Titans, you know, uh, that was a great time. We were jolly. I remember talking to Jaime Hernandez at a party one night when we were in Dallas, Texas, up in this penthouse suite, and it was 4 o'clock in the morning, and we were like some of the five or six people that were left, and we were eating some hors d'oeuvres and drinking free liquor, and I says, I told him, I says, uh, I told him, I says, Jaime, we're jolly green giants that are walking the earth right now. This won't last forever. <laughs> And we were because we had so much fun and the fans were wonderful and they'd come up and they it was just, it was the most perfect thing. I mean, it wasn't like a line of people going by and you'd sign one autograph. You'd actually get to talk to them and stuff. That means a lot to me, actually. You get to talk to people. Sure. But what's interesting is that the market, the, the industry is kind of, used to be one solid thing. And now it's really kind of bifurcated. It's, there's the pop comics and there's the art comics. And the art comics uh, trudge in a different world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have... I just talked to Craig Thompson, right? Blankets. Mm -hmm. This is his new book. And it's a completely different work than, than the mainstream stuff. And there's kind of like no longer this crossover between, you know, the really ambitious work or just different sort of work. Like Jaime especially did your stuff in, in a lot of ways versus mm -hmm. the mainstream stuff. It seems like it's so separated. Well, one of the things that very much influenced me early on was uh, uh, when I was growing up was a movie called Bonnie and Clyde, which I saw... I guess I would have been pretty young. And I saw this movie, but I was astounded by this movie. And then I won an Academy Award, and all of a sudden, instead of five people in the theater, there was like hundreds of people lined up and going to their dinner gowns, and it was a big event. Right. And um, that was an interesting movie in that prior to that, there had been art films, you know, Fellini and Igmar Bergman. And then there had been pop films like Doris Day and the Glass Bottom Boat or El Cid or, you know, The Alamo, you know, all these... Yeah big blockbuster movies, okay? And Bonnie and Clyde merged the two of them. That was the beginning of America's uh, uh, interest in a popular... There's no reason why an arty film can't be also appealed to a mass market audience. Look at Pulp Fiction. 
But see, a lot of people, certain corporations, people that run these companies don't understand and they can't control it. And if it's something they can't control, they'd rather have 10 mediocre films rather than one. But in the meantime, they're killing the whole industry. I was just talking about this yesterday with a friend of mine over lunch. Bonnie and Clyde was part of this whole movement of these, you know, the, the old market was dying, literally on the vine. No one was going to movies anymore because they weren't relating to anybody. Mm-hmm. And then all these rebellious movies, MASH, The Conversation, you know, The Godfather is exactly. you know, a movie everyone loves, but it's an incredibly rebellious movie. It's about these horrible Criminals. villains, right? Yeah. Um, and it wasn't really until Star Wars and Jaws where the market started turning Yes, Star around. Wars, and Jaws, and Rockies. And they started kind of... Blockbustering again, yeah. Yeah. In but the, the, the funny thing is, Star Wars, Jaws, and Rocky were all art films right. that became blockbusters. Single person auteur visions. I mean, you don't think of Sylvester Stallone about like that anymore, but that's no. absolutely what it is. He fought for years to get that movie made. Mm-hmm. And, and in a way, you got you were part of a, a, a parallel movement. I mean, you were kind of rebelling against the hidebound comics, which weren't selling. Um, you know, there was all this feeling in the late 70s, early 80s, the comics were dying. Yeah. And then all of a sudden... Here's this great new wave of energy. Yeah, Dark Knight and, uh, uh, you know, Alan Moore's stuff. I mean, it was all wonderful, incredible stuff. And Neil Gaiman came along. And, so but, where, do you, where do you feel like your place in, in that whole movement is? I mean, well, right now, I mean, I'd certainly like to, uh, uh, you know, be given... I don't want to run Marvel or DC, because mm-hmm. I don't have time to do that. I, I want to do my creative stuff. But I'd like to be given sort of an art house venue, you know, like some of the big studios or something like that. Give me five titles or ten titles a year, bi-monthly or something like that, to come out with something artistic and run them and go get some of my buds and stuff like that. And I'd be, I kind of feel right now what I'm doing is kind of like uh, somebody was telling me the other day, he said, Bob, you're kind of like Colonel Kurtz and his 400 Martin Yards single-handedly winning the Vietnam War. <laughs> while the, the whole military-industrial complex can't do it, <laughs> you know. And... Uh, or like, uh, what was the other one he, this other guy said? Uh, I don't know, I remember. But anyways, you have certain, uh, you know, I, I, and, and that's a great, great, uh, a tough thing to do is to say, okay, you've got to write these good stories, you've got to come up with some good stories. So right now what I'm doing is I'm kind of uh, getting with some of these kids. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about going to some of these art kids that get out of art school and they can't get a job and just say, hey, look, this is, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do this. I'm going to write the story. You're going to draw the thing. We're going to put it out on the internet for free, put it out as an app for a price, and then we're going to make a special edition of 500 or 800 or 1,000 copies and sell them for 10, 20 bucks each. Mm-hmm. We'll split the money. And see, the thing is, they don't have the name to do it, but I do. I have the name, I have the story, they have the time, they have the art. So it's kind of a, a pickup, you know? That's one thing you didn't have in the 80s, is that the internet democratizes everything on some level. Yeah. Well, it, 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 the internet is a strange and insidious thing it's like a, a, a it, it is uh, it is what you make of it yeah it is a information highway but it's also a, a an addiction that can suddenly suck up like 40 percent of your life right, right. I mean, there's people out there that are like all of a sudden they wake up one day and they say where did my life go yeah absolutely but you know one of the things i think about with my website for example it's connecting people with the things that they don't know they want to read about or sure. read yeah. But um, when, as soon as they discover it, they realize this is something I want to have be part of my life. And then you can get everything about it right away. Exactly. So um, I'm kind of intrigued by the fact that you no longer even have to go to the comic shop waiting for you on your phone or your, or your computer, you know, you're sitting at a bus stop and download it to your iPad or whatever. Um, it does make it a lot easier for you to connect to people, but at the same time, you're also in competition with more people. Oh, yeah. 
it's just a crazy interesting world. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know if there's a question there. I don't know what's going to happen with it either. I mean, like, who knows? I mean, uh, we may be genetically altering people on a mental level rather than a biochemical or uh, electronic level. You See, nobody, and you know, you know who, you know, you're going back right now with that statement I just made. Uh huh. You're going back to, uh, you know, Terrence McKenna and DMT. You're going back to, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, you know, uh, Doctor Timothy Leary and that whole, you know, science of, uh, you know, what is LSD? What is this? How we, how are we altering our mentality? I mean, chemically, you can alter your mentality. Electronically, you can alter it by like radio waves. You know, they have these things that, uh, I mean, your brain can start stop functioning because you use a cell phone too much, right? So we're, we're bombarding ourselves with radiation all over the place. I mean, who knows? Maybe that this, uh, you know, we're creating the zombies that, uh, I mean, there's always sort of a premonition of things in, in, in the art forms of a country. Now, this obsession with zombies may be sort of a, a Spanglerian uh, collective. You know, co the collective memory or future vision of the race, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as we're destroying, the American race is destroying itself. <laughs> Who knows? And we're all going to be zombies. We're all walking around with giant clouds around our heads of media and Twitter oh, and Facebook. And, and we could do that mentally or electronically or whatever and destroy ourselves. I mean, what if somebody like, you know, one day just decides this is all bullshit and just walks out and sets them on fire like one of the monks in Vietnam? And, and we're also all a lot more connected, but also disconnected at the same mm -hmm. time. I mean, yeah. how many times do you go to dinner and your friend's tapping on his phone the whole time? Yeah, it's horrible. I mean, it's, you know, it's a mystery. But anyways, getting back to comics, comics is a good medium from that standpoint in that it's not as hot or as instantaneous a medium. It kind of feeds in slowly. You have to stop and read it. Mm -hmm. Whereas these other things, you know, you're watching a television show, and inside of three minutes, they can put three hours of three hours of a movie into a trailer or into a, a video. Right. You see right. what I'm saying? Well, you ever watch you watch an old show from the '70s now, and you're struck by how slow it moves? Who? Like if you watch an old show from the '70s. Oh, old show. I thought you, know, I thought you said old show. I, I streamed like Rocket Files on Netflix. Yeah. And like it just moves so slowly compared to like a USA t uh, Channel Network or yeah. network show. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. We're all just accelerating. Yeah, who knows where it's all going to end up? It's a mystery. You're kind of exploring your own way in your I know. We're, so, kind of, we're, you we're know. looking at things that all these people should be looking at, and all they're looking at is market share and price point and bullshit like that. And they're doing this without any regard for uh, basic human decency, for responsibility to the future, anything like that. And when those people are running things like major corporations or whatever, where there's not a profound Thomas Jefferson type thinking man involved in running things, we're in trouble. Yeah, and you kind of wonder in some ways if uh, we've sown the seeds of our own destruction by this quick uh, rejection of people. When you, communicate, when you communicate so quickly, you know, the snark comes out almost immediately. I've been defaced on Facebook by people and I don't even know it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. They, they, they... It's really interesting, Bob. <laughs> they let them drop fire on people, but they won't let them write fuck on their airplanes. <laughs> Quoting Colonel Kurtz there for a minute. <laughs> Besides Colonel Kurtz, every now and then I'm compared to Nikola Tesla or uh, sometimes Gabby Hayes. So yeah, I could see that. They, a friend of mine said years ago, you're a cross between Dr. Zhivago and Travis Bickle. <laughs> <laughs> I said, those are the two most extreme... <laughs> 
You know, because Dr. Zvacko's this really nice guy. Yeah. Because Bickle's walking around with a mohawk and... It's like, yeah, yeah, right, right. You talking to me? Rejecting everything. I was, I thought, especially if you're older stuff, as being its own kind of very unique world. Mm-hmm. We just Everything's unpredictable and yet somehow predictable at the same time. Yeah, and the thing that a lot of people don't realize about Flaming Carrot was they say that it was a non-story story, but it was not that. It was a, there was a beginning, middle, and end. There was a character arc. There was a story arc. I mean, it was always there. It, it definitely followed its own internal logic. Mm-hmm. And I love that. And I love also... Pulp Fiction followed in a tremendous... Pulp Fiction yeah. was a very... You know, people say, oh, it's a non-story, it's disoriented and everything. No, it followed, but it followed almost on an emotional level rather than a logical level. You see what I'm saying? Right, right. A story can talk... Being able to speak on an emotional level, and a story is very, very important. Because, first of all, you lose the emotional level, number one, you've lost, like, 50% of your audience to start with because the women go, you know. Right. Well, I mean, Flaming Carrot is like a character. You see him, you should you should feel estranged from him, right? I mean, he's as bizarre as you could possibly look. But there's something very winning about his personality, especially when he starts encountering his friends, the girls, or the other superheroes. Mm-hmm. I always had a thing for Screwball, by the way, with his living thread on his shirt. That was uh, my favorite uh, character. Uh, talking Shoelace. Talking Shoelace, that's right. Talking oh, Shoelace got a ring to it, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I love that. The Talking Shoelace. His pet awesome. shoelace. He had a pet <laughs> shoelace. And it peed in that poor little kid's ear. Huh? You can use that for an illustration in the uh, article where they that is that one page in the screwball issue where, like, he says, oh, look, he's got his pet shoelace. And he says, I want it to, I want to hear it, too. I want to listen to what he has to say. And, well, he might talk to you, but he might not. <laughs> and the kid's a really obnoxious kid. And he says, and the shoelace, he says, here, say something to the little boy. And he, he goes, ah, my ear's wet. What happened? He says, he peed in his ear. <laughs> So I wanted to ask you, so the, the, those are the mystery men. Uh-huh. The mystery men from the movie, some the same, some very different. Was oh, that yeah? intentional? Oh, no, it was, it was a decision they made. The okay. tone of their movie was totally different from what I did. I was envisioning right. something more along the lines of a cross between, uh, say, like Repo Man and Lonesome Dove. Okay. <laughs> what they did was they wanted to do... See, I don't know, the costumes those guys had looked like they came out of some kind of... Um, you know, something Freddie Mercury would wear. You know, I mean, it was like, oh, let's be, you know, let's get the, and they were just too, and when I saw the costumes, I just shook my head, you know. Uh, when I read the screenplay, uh, I said, well, you know, we'll see what happens, and, you know, things like that, but it was, uh, it's not the way I would have done it. No. No, clearly not. No. Actually, Repo Man's a great, a great analogy for your comics, I think, because it has uh, that same kind of internal logic and also dreamlike state to it where it, it made sense, but you had to kind of let the story flow at the same time. You had to let go and enjoy the movie. Teaching an audience right from the very start, a director should make the audience let go and enjoy the movie. I think you just hit on what I what I always loved about the Flaming Carrot books, especially back in the day. And the, I don't want to diss your current work. It's hard to do, though, for a lot of these people. Another thing that, that I think that's very, very important to move, one of my other rules for a movie, is you got to show them having fun. Yeah. You have to have a moment in there where they just, like, for instance, in the movie, uh, just coming to mind, Das Boot, that scene where they're going through the Dardanelles or the, the, the Straits of Gibraltar and the bullets and the English are shooting at them and every bullets are going everywhere and they're just they're they're, they're just so the guy's so happy and so stoked and he's having so much fun blasting through there while everybody's shooting at everybody else. They don't uh-huh. know what the hell's going on. Nobody knows it's the middle of the night. That's somebody having fun. Uh, 
and you suddenly feel empathy for him, right? You want to be that guy. This is a, yeah. Somebody having every, fun. Despite everything else, a, there's an element of the show that you love, right? Uh, in uh, you know, a lot of movies, there's that moment where you show people just having fun, and that that kind of helps the movie. That makes a movie. And these people in Hollywood don't understand. There's certain rules McKee doesn't understand. He doesn't discuss that. You know, I could give you five things, ten things that aren't in his book. I could write my own book on screenwriting. I've never written a screenplay. I mean, I've written a screenplay. I've never actually had a screenplay uh-huh. produced. I've written two screenplays. One for Amazing Disman, and which is good. Another one for um, uh, All Villain Comics. The, the second and the fourth Mystery Men issues. Okay. Now the All Villain one. Some people say that. it's the best, one of the best screenplays they've ever read. Uh huh. Um, you feel like uh, you ever think of getting, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars together and getting your friends to kind of get together and make something? These, I mean, that's another thing that's become much more democratized, making a movie. Actually, yeah, we've been talking about, you know, and that people want to make movies. But see, I would make a movie that would like, um, I would want to make a movie that would just really, uh, you know, and you say, which one's that going to be? What's going to be the best one? So you have to sit back and say, I'm just going to do something to learn how to do this mm-hmm. and not try to do the best. It's like when I'm in New York and I'm in a cab. For 20 years I've been doing this. I always ask the cab driver, you know, about the weird things that happen in his cab. Now, everybody else says, what's the weirdest thing that's happened in your cab? You know what I say? I say, what's one of the 10 weirdest things that's happened in your cab? Because you ask him, what's the weirdest thing that happened in your cab? You're going to go, by the time you get to 10 minutes later to your location, he's finally thought of it. Because he's weighing them all out. Uh-huh. But if you ask, what's one of the 10 weirdest, he'll give you number 7, number 3, the first things that come into his mind. And then you get a story. Then I would put my tape recorder on. I've got all these tapes of New York cab drivers. Before taxi cab confessions or anything like right. that. Mine were better than taxi cabs because I'd have weird stories about them throwing babies out of the window and, you know, getting in the car with a live gorilla and, uh, you know, just, I mean, just crazy, That's wacky, awesome. surreal stuff. Because every cab driver has a story. It's just a question of getting it out of them. Every one of those guys of course, has something wacky. Okay, that's a, that's awesome. As someone who does a lot of interviews, that's a line I'm going to take. Yeah? Not, not what's the best. What's one of the ten best? <laughs> that's smart. Love it. Yeah, I invented that. Mysterians. Mm-hmm. They're coming. Who are they? The Mysterians. Well, see, this is there's actually a website called The Mysterians Up, and The Mysterians are... The story starts out and you see a, a sign. It says, Buffalo, New York. Population 26,386,000. Blah, blah, blah. Uh-huh. And that's, that's the thing. It's like 50 years in the future, and Buffalo, because of Love Canal, is like the gar- human garbage dump for people that have been mutated by cell phones and GMOs and uh, pollution and people that have lost all their, house, their houses and they're their, their penniless and, and because they, their houses are underwater and they lost everything. And they all go to Buffalo and they work. And see, Buffalo is an open city, it's open to industry. No rules. So okay. they can do any kind of pollution they want or, you know, chemical pollution, toxins, all this stuff's in the water. So there's a lot of mutants there. There's a lot of superheroes. And, and it's like with all these people in Buffalo, it's built, you know, house upon house. And, you know, just stack, you know, the, the cubby holes are stacked up to the skyline. Uh-huh. And there's all this smoke and it's an overcast, depressing place. <laughs> and what I do is I take three, I, my first story, I take three young um, uh, superheroes that are all that are left of the Pearson Five. There's, there was this Pearson Five, five guys, 
one of them the guy who was filled with rage all the time? The I person five? Yeah, I'm thinking of a different set of characters. He had oh, one character like, who was old. These are just made Mr. up. I'm thinking Mr. Furious, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mr. Furious. But anyways, there's a person five, and one of them is in jail for planning evidence on a crime scene in order to get somebody convicted, get a better conviction, and the other one was flying over the city the other day and he just exploded. So you got the Zeke, and he's trying to take care of these uh, two other guys that are in the team that are kind of, you know, so it's these kids on their own. Uh-huh. And they become homeless because the police come and raid their place for, for gray market credit cards, which they're doing on the side to finance their superheroing. And, uh, and also hawking uh, tickets, you know, for the counterfeit tickets for the sports events. Uh-huh. And then, um, <laughs> you know, so they, their place gets raided, so they're homeless superheroes. They've lost everything. They have no more... They have no place to sleep, you know, they've lost all their stuff, they have no food, they don't even have beer money. So, um, and what happens later on is one of these guys, there's this, this, this superhero called the uh, Crimson Messenger, and he's a, he's a Christian-sponsored superhero who's been desponsored because of his uh, drug use and libido. You know, he's always a horn dog. He's always chasing women like like Harpo Marx. Uh-huh. And so he's down there, He's a, he's got an over overly active sex drive. He's down there and he and he, he's standing on top of this roof looking into the building next door where the nude lesbian aerobics class is going on. And he, he's getting a better look and he finds a soft spot in the roof and he falls through the roof and he lands on top of this poor guy eating dinner. Well, this poor guy eating dinner is the master criminal of the whole city. The most wanted man. So they get over, he calls his buddies and they get over there and they're going to eat well then. Guys unconscious, and they tie him all up. And they said, We should turn this guy in for a big reward. And he said, Wait a minute, let's have some fun first. And he's got this big super costume with super weapons and everything. Let's take it out on the town tonight. So they go after the Anathema brothers, the Anathema brothers, the ones who ratted them out on the credit cards, and they mess them up really bad, freak them out. And they're coming back and they stop at this bar. And there's this one girl that the, the, the Zeke, who's, who's dressed up in the costume, has been hitting on for like two weeks. He can't get anywhere near her. All of a sudden, she's coming on to him. Because he's a criminal, he's a bad girl's like bad guys. So they decide in order to get laid, in order to they got this beautiful place with a well stocked Don Perignon, you know, caviar, you know, the guy lives really well, the super criminal. They got all his stuff, all his equipment and everything. And they they hijack and take over his, his whole life. That's it. Now I can see that as a movie. Oh yeah, that's all you hit on the, the thing that I love the best about your characters. There are all these like normal guys doing the normal things that you would do, whether or not you have yeah, the powers, right? They're real. They're real. Yeah, totally real. Yeah. A little surreal, surreal and real at the same time, right? Yeah. So. Oh, thank you.